0: In the shadow of the most powerful city in the world, the Capital Golf Gang is on the air with instructor John Ronis from the Ronis Academy at River Creek, executive director of the Middle Atlantic PGA, John Gould, and former University of Maryland golfer, Ron Thomas. And now your host in Washington DC, Steve Zabin.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Capital Golf Gang presented by Golfdom. We are remote this week, scattered to the wind, but still together virtually. And while Ron Thomas is under the weather with a nasty cold, may or may not be COVID, John Gould is recovering from COVID, but he is going to join us in just a moment here uh, after I set the stage. I believe Mr. Ronas is healthy and we're looking forward to talking to him. All right, that said, let's get to it. The Women's Open Championship, or the Women's Women's British Open, has landed at venerable Muirfield Golf Club in Glane, Scotland, the original honorable company of Edinburgh golfers. It is a wonderful course and a very historic club that also had gotten the reputation as being the rudest club in the world. Actually, Golf Digest once published a story calling Muirfield, quote, quite possibly the rudest club in the world. So, quite possibly. They left open the door to it being, you know, second place in terms of rude. It was also like a dwindling number of private clubs around the world, all male in its membership. Now, putting aside whether or not clubs should or should not have the right to be all male or all female, the story of how Muirfield evolved to save its status as part of the iconic Open Championship rotation and to now add a women's Open Championship to further stamp its evolving credibility as a club who has realized you know what we we can do better let's open up the doors let's open up the criteria just a bit john Huggin, writing for golf digest has an excellent piece about it and he writes perceived misogyny was just one of their less than attractive traits at this the world's rudest golf club in so many other ways the all males of Muirfield lived down to just about every negative stereotype the wider populace largely ignorant of the eclectic social mix that golf encompasses across the globe saw as the game's elitist place in society the honorable club was not always the most reputable an entry into the club accounts from the night from 1786 reads this is good quote Cash for getting Dixon out of prison, five shillings and seven pence. <laughs> a club expense to bail out a member from prison in 1786. More recently, there is also plenty of evidence that the club was largely populated by those keen to preserve their elitist environment. To wit, Future King Edward VIII was once denied access to the course. On separate occasions, a brace of U.S. Open champions like Payne Stewart, the late Payne Stewart, and Jeff Ogilvy, ended up playing nearby Galane Number 1 course when Muirfield told them, sorry, we don't have room for you today in a practice round. Both men looked down from the 7th tee at Galane, which sits on a hilltop, high to the east, or to the west, I believe, of the club, to see a deserted Muirfield below after having been told, I'm sorry, the T-sheet is booked. (laughs) Only hours after he'd won the 1980 Open, Tom Watson, along with Ben Crenshaw and Tom Weisskopf, were asked to leave the premises because they grabbed a couple of clubs and went out and played a mini three-hole loop. For many, that well-established and impervious level of arrogance was further underlined on May of 2016, on May 19th. On that day, Henry Fairweather, then captain of a clearly not so honorable company, announced that the membership had voted against the admission of women into their midst. To be fair, most who did vote were in favor of the motion. The vote was 64% to 36%. But it fell short of the two-thirds majority required. Retribution was swift, writes Huggin. In addition to worldwide opprobrium that apparently came as a shock to even the hardest liners within the club, within a day, the RNA chief executive, Martin Slumbers, announced that as long as the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers reaffirmed status quo remained in place as men only, the Open Championship would not return to the jewel in East Lothian's so-called Gulf Coast. Meanwhile, Stuart McEwen, the club's secretary, who arrived at Muirfield after working stints at Kings Barnes and Glen Eagles, said, quote, I received two packages from primary schools in the wake of the vote. They were handwritten letters from the kids, all asking, why do we hate women wow we also got many messages and emails targeting the club which was unpleasant and showed us how serious this had all become it was not just a golf issue it was global and when we shared all that with the membership they became nervous about what was next happily what did come next writes huggin was a second vote one that saw now 81% of those who voted in favor of women members. So it had passed. The ability to stay in the open rotation was preserved. Now, the process by which they would induct members was rather complicated and required people to nominate and then five others to uh, back the membership. And so. It was going to take a long time to get up to a certain number of members. So they fast-tracked that, certain number of female members, so they fast-tracked that so that now, uh, just six years afterwards, uh, the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers has 20 women members, a number that will rise to 25 shortly. This is part of an 800-strong membership and some would say that's all 25 out of 800 and that's of course the slippery slope of this that if you say hey it's not right that we are male only and you admit 25 women out of 800 there's always going to be some people that say well that's not enough it should be more or it should be 50-50 but the nature of a club is such that well here's here's what we want to have as a club to come play and to golf and to socialize and do business What is the right mix? And it doesn't always break upon male versus female. It oftentimes breaks in terms of old versus young. And so clubs will sometimes give a much more preferential initiation fee to those under 30 or under 40 because they want to get younger. Or they may tighten rules on guests during the week because they feel like their club has become too much of a corporate thing. Or some lean into the corporate outing business. It's all different, obviously. But that's where Muirfield is now. And this is what you're going to probably hear a little bit about during the broadcast this week. In conclusion to the huggin' piece, Mr. Arthur says, the rudest golf club in the world? We used to joke about it, but only until we started to think about it. Why do we have that reputation? Well, because we deserved it. More on that and my experiences at Bureaufield coming up right now. And with that as a preamble, it's my pleasure to welcome on John Gould, the Executive Director of the Middle Atlantic PGA. John Rallying from about with COVID, still a few coughs left in there. So uh, yes. if you have one or two, this segment, no worries, my friend. Good to see that you are on the mend.
2: Yes, it's good to be back. Uh, good to be on the phone
1: with you. Exactly. <laughs> good to be on the phone. Good to be back at my desk working. Right? Because when right. you're when you're laid up, you're like, geez, I'd I'd love to work right now, but I can't even do that. Correct. Yes. All right. So with that as a preamble, I found that article about Muirfield. Quite fascinating. Now, I've had the distinct pleasure, maybe honor, although it is just a golf club, of playing Murfield, not once, but twice. And ironically, having known about their legend as being the, quote, rudest club in the world, as that article chronicles. Right. Each time we went there, I found them to be quite normal, actually, which is weird. But obviously, the female membership thing was a big sticking point so what was your take on that article about the journey of the honorable company of edinburgh golfers to get into the 21st century and they are now hosting the women's open this
2: week yeah well a journey is probably the right the right uh description of it uh you know (laughs) once again sorry about that um the the fact that they had a vote and almost passed it but didn't and they thought oh well you know that's no big deal and certainly let me let me start by saying hey they're a private club they can do anything they want but also the associations have a right to do whatever they want in terms of not going there for events or even announcing that that's why they're not going there and making it a public issue that that's certainly the rna's prerogative as well so uh and obviously the the uh you know, societal pressure had had reached other places before Muirfield, and and uh, and and eventually got there as well. And I found interesting that at the end of the article, how much it said. You know what? We don't know what we were thinking. Everything's fine. You know, we have 25 women now, and you know, we most of them play with the men. There's not many times where it's just women playing, and uh, everything's great. And we're hosting the Women's British Open, and we're on the road for. For the regular open, so everything's great. So it was a
1: journey, though. Yeah, for sure. it really was. I mean, from a from a theoretical standpoint, you can believe, as a man uh, who has daughters like I do and like you do, right. that yeah. there should still be allowable in civil society, even in the 21st century and beyond, private clubs that choose to be all male. You can believe that, even though it is increasingly out of step in today's times, but you would forfeit the right to the major events, which is what Muirfield was facing. There's a cost to it. Now, some clubs in our area have paid that price, Burning Tree most notably, because they got got taxed at a much higher rate by the county once they stood firm and said, listen, we're just going to remain what we've always been, which is an all-male member club.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's uh, uh, consequences to your actions. I think that's the the, the, the result of all that. You, you have the right to do that. And then the the county in that case or the RNA in Muralfield's case right. also has the right to make decisions based on your, your, uh, your actions. Uh, so I, th- I think everybody kind of gets that, that, you know, hey, nobody's saying you can't do it. But nobody's saying you can do it and still get all the privileges and all the benefits that you had before. So it's your choice.
1: Right. And with the game and with your organization, the PG of America, being charged with, amongst others, growing the game of golf, Mm -hmm. uh, there there just is, is no way you can have major events at clubs that are restricted to one sex or the other it's just not going to fly we want big tent
2: or or race correct big or, tent is expect, a good way to well put it.
1: especially race but you know yep. a big tent on everything you know uh, old and old and young rich and poor uh private and public uh black white green brown everything in between and men women and everything in between on that front as well correct. the biggest tent is what's best for for the game of golf. But, well, yeah, they yeah. they had built a reputation as being real hard asses as witnessed by the fact that they once chased Crenshaw and Watson off right. the course following the British Open when nobody was, was the year, out there.
2: And that was the year Watson had won, right? Yes! I mean, and so he was the reigning champion. So, yeah, very interesting uh, story. I would love to hear the full story about how they got – found out and who made the decision and Mm -hmm. who, who walked up there and told them to leave this empty golf course, because you're not, you don't enjoy the privileges of membership here. So I think there's, Uh, I think
1: think there's a certain element at these clubs that get a reputation where they go and they do that because it'll add to the legend. They're like, Oh, look at that. Just, Oh, Watson's back out there again. I'm going to go reel him in. Sir, the course is closed. I don't know if you saw the sign. They want to do that because then it becomes even more legendary.
2: Right, and it makes them feel like their membership's more valuable, more exclusive. Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess so. But-
1: the the two times the two times that I was there, a couple things struck me. First time we were there, it struck me that the range has a series of Astroturf mats upon which we hit off of. And I because thought, you were a guest
2: or because of the weather or something.
1: Maybe because we were guests. Uh, we right. played there on a Tuesday, which is, I guess uh, the guest day in which you can play. By the way, you know, for being the stuffiest and rudest club in the world, you can still get on. If you bring your wallet and you're with a tour right. guide that has access to a limited number of tea times, so at least there's that. But there was AstroTurf mats for one. And secondly, there was a large contingent of what I believe were uh, Japanese tourist golfers, including uh, several women that were going to play the course that day. So while they were not members, they were certainly not uh, shunned away from playing the course. And as is often the case, they they had some rather colorful fashion statements, <laughs> and it was the kind of thing where I thought, "Hey, I thought this was Muirfield. I thought you guys would say, uh, uh, please, can you change into something else?' Because Put the of this. Wimbledon white Sun?" Right, right, exactly. But they but they did not care. Uh, the second time we went. Uh, The clubhouse is undergoing construction because of this change in membership. They're going to have to build some some women's locker rooms and other stuff. And get this, Ghoul. They gave us a free sleeve of logoed Pro V1s as a courtesy and an apology for their mess. They were like, we're sorry that there's construction going on, but here's a sleeve of balls. And I said, I thought we were at Muirfield. What right. is with this utterly normal treatment? <laughs> when, are we, when do we get
2: classy here? Yeah, that's right,
1: perfect. Right, exactly. And then one more thing, and this is 2018. Uh, at the turn, our group had lagged just a bit. I mean, only a half a hole, if that. And we were politely admonished by a female ranger that we needed yeah. to catch up with a group ahead of us. And I said, "Well, Muirfield, you come a long way, baby." So That's right. good good for them. It's a it's an outstanding <laughs> course. I do, it doesn't resonate with me as much as it does some people who play it where they just swoon and they rave about it. It's nice. It's set back far from the sea compared to other Scottish open venues but it'll be a it'll be a wonderful venue for the women this week at the women's open.
2: Yeah, yeah, I actually watched a lot of the Scottish uh and the what was the one in front the Evian. um so I've been watching some LPGA lately just cuz the timing has been working where sure. they're on what, what you know the 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 Scottish when I'm home not being able to do anything I was watching uh, at 7 a.m. in the morning uh which was which is Fun to
1: watch, actually. Yeah, absolutely. So that said, uh, let's pivot to some other things happening in the world of golf. This week in the PGA Tour, it is Wyndham Week, the Wyndham Championship in Greensboro, North Carolina. Yeah, and final it is, week. Yeah, it is the it is truly glory's last shot. That is what the PGA Tour or the PGA Championship, yeah, your championship, organization, you right? had that phrase, you know, glory's last shot because you were the last major. Uh, this okay. is the last shot for guys – to secure their tour cards for next year and their last shot to get into the tour the championship.
2: So right. your thoughts on the Wyndham? Yeah. I mean, it's always been a kind of a non, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not one, not of course you, uh, a, a event you quote unquote had to play one of the big ones that all the big guys had to play. And those that are well in front of the points list, uh, are also skipping it. Sure. But you know, for everybody on the bubble, this is, the event, right? You, you got to, some of them might have to get a top five to get that top 125. Um, it, it's interesting. I will probably mo- be more likely to watch it because of that, uh, that I would never have said, oh, I got to go see Sedgefield. You know, I, w- I got to go see what it looks like on TV. I would have never, it wouldn't have been appointment viewing. And, and now it probably is. Maybe not till Sunday because they're jockeying for position on Thursday and Friday. And that, while that's important, you know, it's not determining the, the fates of, you know Ricky Fowler, I know is close, and some of the uh, sure. the gang right there around 120
1: to 130. So, this so. stop on tour always was a marvel to me because uh, having lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, and having been through Greensboro, uh, don't blink, you might miss it. I have yep. always said, man, I can't believe the tour has a stop here when they t- and they're nuts though too. The the fans are all gung ho. Yes, absolutely, and and they don't have stops, at least not currently in philadelphia here in washington right. in denver you know top 10 type markets and you know the the, the course they play at you, you look at the pictures of the clubhouse you're like oh yeah i know a club just like that in dc yeah. and they held the uh bobby bowers junior tournament it's nice but you're like that's it and they got a tour event but apparently they take great care of the pros and they all love going there the
2: ones that do well and, and and most of them now it's a have to go not a want to go because right. of the points determining and what's going to be interesting dynamic this year too is used to be four four or three playoff with yeah four total with the tour championship but uh, uh versions of the playoff now with only three instead of going to a top 100 for the third event um they're going straight to top 75 and then to top 30 for the tour championship so it's not only the guys that need to get in the top 20, 125 just to make the FedEx playoffs. But a lot of them got to make positions so they can get the top 75 for the second level of the playoffs, which is right. a little bit changed from, you know, this is partially the reaction to, to live golf and, you know, Hey, let's cut, cut out one round of the playoffs, not making it so onerous on the, on the top players.
1: Yeah. Uh, the PJ tour schedule came out for next year. Uh, as an administrator yourself, I think this is something in your wheelhouse. Obviously, the tour has to make certain decisions on where they're going to be and how it all flows together, and the puzzle piece is fitting. One of the notable uh, aspects of the calendar next year is that the Phoenix Open is going to land on the same Sunday as Super Bowl Sunday, and, of course, it's in the same city because yeah. the Super Bowl – is in Phoenix, so that week is gonna be bonkers nuts, and yep. they're gonna play. As it has been in the past, right? And they're gonna they're gonna move up the tee times a bit to make sure that that thing is a wrap before
2: kickoff, sometime around six o'clock Eastern. In the past, I think they've even done that on Saturday. Finished finished the event. You know, do a Wednesday to Saturday event, uh, so that everybody has Sunday for the Super Bowl. But it makes yeah. sense that that you know that interestingly because the Super Bowl. It's usually around six thirty Eastern time, so that means sure. it's three thirty out there, and they've got to finish a tournament by three thirty, which is not easy with seventy players or so. Right, but it'll almost definitely be double T, uh, you know, split T start. So
1: yeah, the other the other thing is that uh, the tour announced increases in purse sizes for a, a good handful of their higher profile events. It was like five million more for the players and three million more. For Bay for Hill. Memorial. and Memorial. Yeah, yep. right, exactly. Now, here's the question I have, John. Was this money just sitting around somewhere and they go, oh, here, we could pay you more. And what does yeah, think- the players' advisory council say to the tour when all of a sudden they have found more money thanks to Live
2: Golf standing up and becoming a thing? You know, that's an excellent question. And, and a question if I was a player, I would definitely ask um, and without knowing the answer, it's, it's hard to predict what that would be, but, you know, certainly they could be, you know, one of the things about the PGA tour that a lot of our amateurs don't understand is that every one of every cut made is a, an investment in that player's retirement, uh, you know, cause mostly, uh, and unfortunately, in the olden days you played. If you didn't save money when you were too uh, too old to play well anymore, you didn't have a retirement. Now they have an unbelievable retirement. And I'm wondering if they're just moving money that would be my question. Is that right. money that was getting you know stored in this place for, for someone's retirement? Uh, is that still going? I mean, maybe it is. I have no idea. Sure. Um, or are they just moving money around and saying, okay, well, we'll pay it now and not pay as much into what you're going to get way down the road. And now that the money's this good, Maybe they don't need retirement anymore, or at least not the, you know, maybe only the middle level and not the top level.
1: Yeah. Do you get a different level of retirement based on cuts made?
2: Yes, it's all about cuts made. And so it, it, that, that influences your, um, uh, I, I forget how they word it, but basically if you think of it as points, yeah, you know, you get more points, the more cuts you make. It doesn't, as far as I know, it doesn't matter that you get first or fifth. It's just that you made a cut. Oh, so, made. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's like, it's almost like, um, participation points, but you have to do something to, you know, grow the game and that's right. making a cut is the way they rephrased it. Yeah. Well, it's,
1: uh, it's interesting because all of a sudden, oh yeah, actually we do have more money here. Would you, would you like to play for that money?
2: In the Yeah. Maybe they took it out of some of the, uh, tour, uh, executives paychecks.
1: Yeah, although <laughs> at, you know, and some of those some of those salaries because I think they are public uh, figures or public knowledge as a company. Yep. Some of them are pretty nice, but even if you added them all up, you know, that's, no, you, that's you get 20, a couple
2: tournaments right. Yeah. If,
1: if that you get a couple of tournaments bumped, that's for sure. Have you seen the year that Cam Young is having? As he finished runner up again at the three M, uh, top ten Tony, as he has derisively been called, has just won. Back-to-back weeks, Tony Finau. So all you haters out there calling him top 10 Tony, that's over now because the guy has won back-to-back. Just like Xander Shoffley won back-to-back earlier this year, proving that nice guys can and do finish first. But Cam Young, get this, five runners up now in his rookie season on the big tour, and that is tied for most with six other guys in tour history, but none of the other six were rookies when they finished with five runners up in a season,
2: and two of those are majors, I believe, right? So <laughs> yes, right. So I mean that's incredible. You know, it's he, he's probably my new. You know, I'm I'm always a homer for Justin Thomas because he's son of a PGA professional. Well, Cam Young is the son of a PGA professional at a place in New York called Sleepy Hollow. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, obviously, I'm certainly rooting for him. But he's got game. I mean, he gets the ball a long way, controls his game. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't take as long as uh top 10 Tony, but he starts uh, pumping out some wins. Yeah, uh- he,
1: he's probably the second best cam in the world right now behind Cam Smith, <laughs> but ahead of Cam champ, at least in my yeah, unofficial we all thought rankings.
2: Cam Champ, was we all thought, was the next great I thing know. maybe two or three years ago. I know.
1: We thought he was the next truth. Golf is hard, man. You, you, you have hot streaks and you have cold streaks. By the way, the six guys, because I know people are going, who are they? Who are the six with the five runners up? VJ in 03, Ernie Els in 2000, Jesper Parnovic in 97, Frank Urban Zeller in 94, Fuzzy. Cal in '90 and Marco Mira in 1984. So Cam Young
2: is in pretty rarefied air there. And then it's interesting. All yeah. those guys are kind of the same, the you know, kind of the same genre of solid players. Didn't win a lot, yeah. But were solid, you know that you know you you know their names, but you know maybe uh, a handful of majors between them all. Yeah. So yeah, basically.
1: All right, and then there's the uh, the live tour from this past week in. Uh, Trump at Trump Bedminster in New Jersey where, look, uh, you had a better leaderboard than they've had since this thing started. Of the three events, it was the yeah. best leaderboard at the top. And Henrik Stenson, what a statement. After dropping the captaincy for the Ryder Cup, a $4 million win and then a drop, the Mike quote saying, I played like a captain today. He also got 375000 for winning the team event. I had forgotten last week when we talked that he lost a lot of money in that Alan Sanford scam. Remember that? Oh that, no, I, did, I, I yes. now I remember, but I hadn't hadn't recalled that. I had forgotten that as well, and that was you know something that look you have to consider in, in terms of okay, he might have made X million dollars, but he also lost I think twenty million. Uh, Alan Stanford, I think not Sanford. Alan Stanford was the was pretty much a mini off there. Um, Pat right. Perez. Who was no help whatsoever to the winning team of the Aces uh, with with Henrik Stenson uh, uh, or this no the winning team came in second or the winning team was Dustin Johnson Patrick Reed they were all top five but they won for a team a bunch of money and Perez who has finished t twenty nine and t thirty one these last two weeks has made one point seven five million as part of the four man team element of the Live Tour.
2: Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you know, we talk about being a meritocracy at the regular tour, being a PJ tour, being a meritocracy. And then you've got guys over there, uh, you know, sliding by, getting the appearance money and getting money for other people's play. Uh, so it's an interesting, you know, and it, once again, like you said about uh, Henrik, you know, hey, to each your own, you've got the decision to make about, you know, playing competitive and earning your way, or, but that's a lot of money to, to, uh, uh, tempt you and right and Henrik and Pat obviously said the money's worth it so they went that way yeah and of course uh there was a story but this week would, I, I didn't yep. find it amusing though that Henrik said you know uh I didn't want to give up the captaincy uh you know it's just you know uh, but well, not but he knew very well that as soon as he gave yeah. up uh the the, the uh, or started on the live tour that that was part of the equation he signed a contract right to that right yeah, they all they all play it that way. Like, I would do
1: both, you know? Yeah. And that's what the tour players are saying now. They're like, well, I'd love to play both. Why can't I play both? And the answer is, well, because your old tour said that's not how it's going to be. So you right. got to choose. These all are right. the rules. Yeah, these are the rules indeed. All right, what else is shaking in the Mid-Atlantic this week?
2: Well, we're coming up on our um, a couple of our championships. Our assistance championship is uh, next uh, Monday and Tuesday. At uh, Green Spring Valley, up in Baltimore, a beautiful place. Uh, and um, not going to bore you with the whole calendar, but we got our seniors coming up, and then our section championship in September. So it's starting to be a couple of our majors. Our pros are obviously still busy. Uh, rounds are up everywhere, and nice. uh, you know, keeping keeping uh, our our playing our golfing public happy at whether they're public or private courses. So right. uh, they keep getting it done. I love it.
1: Keep going strong, people. I know it's August. It is sweltering. The thunderstorms are coming fast and furious, but we got to play golf because winter is coming, like they said in Game of Thrones, and we want to get the rounds in. All right, Mr. Gould, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Yep, good to be back. One final note about Muirfield that was not in this article I read to you earlier, and that is the practice of blackballing. Yes, you've heard of being blackballed from something. Where does that come from? Well, it didn't originate at Muirfield Golf Club, but they did use a blackball style of ballot box when it came to voting on new members. Blackballing was a system that was typically used in private organizations or clubs pr- to be able to provide that just one or two objections in the form of a black ball that was dropped into a secret drawer in a mahogany box. Would then allow for the rejection of either a measure or perhaps a new member without having to have any of the people voting say who it was that dropped the black ball into the box. So basically, a large supply of both black and white balls provided for voters, and each voter would audibly cast a large or a single ball into the ballot box so you could hear it, usually under the cover of the box or with a combination of a cloth and the box itself. So you couldn't see what ball they were dropping in, but you know that they were voting right then and there. So there was that sort of anonymity combined with the ability to go, okay, I was at the meeting and I saw people vote in person, so I know that there was a real vote. And here's what the results were. When the voting was complete, they would open the drawer and you would see the balls displayed If there were any black balls in there or if there was more black balls than white balls, then you knew your answer. Most clubs have, I think, thankfully, done away with that process. Because if you're going to vote against someone or something, you ought to be bold enough to put your name to it and stand for it and show your reasons why you do so. Coming up, John Ronis on the Capitol Golf Gang will get the latest from my man, the director of golf at River Creek in Leesburg. A variety of topics on the table for my friend, instructor, and part-time guitarist for his band, Just South of Seven, which can be heard in the Leesburg and Loudon area somewhere near you. Stay with us. You're listening to the Capital Golf Gang presented by Golfdom. You are listening to the
0: Capital Golf Gang for guys who still don't know the difference between red steaks, yellow steaks, and white steaks, except they're all bad. are listening to the Capital Golf Gang, a foursome of men with tight pants, tighter wallets, and vanity handicaps.
1: We are back. It is the Capital Golf Gang presented by Golfdom, and we are joined now by John Ronas, the director of golf at River Creek in Leesburg. Good afternoon, Mr. Ronas. How are you today?
3: Spectacular yourself.
1: I'm doing good. Doing as good as Tony Finau?
3: Yeah, yeah. Tony is doing pretty well In fact, he's living his life right now Did you see some of the uh, posts of him um, Having little parties in the streets And stuff like that? I I did see that as a matter of fact And I
1: think a lot of it And I touched on this with Mr. (laughs) Gould Before uh, I segued to you Is that he had derisively been called Top 10 Tony Where are you going right now, by the way? You gotta go drive somewhere? Are you making a getaway somehow?
3: Yeah, I am, (laughs) I am I'm actually running home to feed the dogs, (laughs) and then I have to run back here.
1: Okay. All right. Well, don't let me interrupt. You're running home to feed the dogs. So Tony Finau had been derisively called by some as top 10 Tony, that he was a guy good for finishing in the top 10. But as far as winning goes, that he didn't quite have it. Now, this is a common and I think unfair criticism of golfers and other athletes that supposedly can't win the big one or can't close but there is a psychology in play and you know this having instructed many top players top juniors along the way that winning is a slightly different cut of mentality than just doing well can you dig into yeah. that and tell me what you've found over the years when it comes to winning versus just finishing nice
3: yeah i mean it's a very it's a very interesting Topic that you speak to for uh, junior players and even some some adult players who are getting to the point where they're getting better and getting close to winning and you know just getting close to winning in any degree is amazing um, at any level. But those who start to fall short repeatedly really just fall into a confidence issue of um, putting too much pressure on themselves because the perception and it's maybe not their perception but they perceive themselves as. The person who gets close but doesn't win. As soon as you can eliminate that, excuse me, as soon as you can eliminate that from your psyche of people have a perception of me, and just realize that you're getting as many opportunities as possible, and you're bound to break through. Then you're going to do it. But it's a vicious cycle of you know winning breeds winning, but how do you win in the first place? So right. it's, it's a very difficult topic to start to talk to people about. Um, and really, what you have to say is is you're still one of the best players in the world if you're finishing top 10 in all these events. Sure. Um, And and you're bound to win eventually.
1: I've always thought that there is a fine difference between the notion of being aggressive when you have a chance to win something versus being urgent or having urgency to win because you are close. And maybe it's a matter of semantics. I don't know. But to me, the difference is... Being more aggressive may not be the actual play if you're close to winning a golf tournament, but certainly you've got to have a sense of urgency, which is a heightened focus and a sort of heightened awareness of exactly what you're going to do where and when to finish on top and not just finish top five.
3: That's actually a great comment. That's that is a great comment. The urgency factor I think encompasses everything that you would need to be heightened about. So, when do you be aggressive? When do you not be aggressive? Am I being too aggressive or too passive? Am I uh, taking a chance here when I shouldn't? Am I playing like the guy that I'm playing with instead of my own game? Those are some things I think that are very, very important. Just blanketing with saying, you know what, I'm just going to let it all fly and I'm going to be as aggressive as possible. That's not really being prepared for the situation. That is a, a one-side-minded attempt to just say well i was aggressive and it failed you know being prepared and being hyper aware is a much better way to put it i like i like the way you put that all right
1: let's play a quick nine shall we i've got nine hypotheticals for you to play and we'll kick them around we'll go to and by the way this course is totally new to john ronas has been given no no advanced warning you know sometimes you plop down on a nine hole course in this show and you don't know the holes and you stand on the tee and you go well, which way does this one go is there water over here is there not water over here all right you ready yep. yep here we go hole number 1 who is the strangest dude you've ever played around a round of golf with while wow. you th- while you think about that i think i played with a candidate for that this past week. Now when I say Ooh. strangest dude, I don't mean a bad guy at all. In fact, many of the strangest dudes that you meet are absolute princes and you you have a great affinity for them. But you say to yourself, "My goodness, what an odd fella he is, but I like him." So this guy, Alex, I was paired with at Maryland National as part of my boy Want to Count Rhodes' weekly 2 o'clock Thursday game, the Thursday night mm-hmm. men's league of Maryland National. Yeah, This guy's name is Alex. He is a tall, lean, handsome, young drink of water who really has a good move, but he's a bit wild off the tee, and his game is a bit rough around the edges. First tee he gets up. And takes a practice swing, and I I say, oh, this guy can really move it. Watch this, and he proceeds to top it off the tee in a manner that almost defied belief, because the ball just dribbled maybe <laughs> ten, maybe ten feet in front of him. He so cleanly nipped it, the one one of a circumference of the pelota, <laughs> to just dribble it off the tee, and. I was and it was a full force swing and I'm like wow what happened there and he said oh well you know I cut my driver down 3 quarters of an inch yesterday and I'm still getting used to it
3: come
1: on <laughs> and I come said on. I said wow you you didn't think to start with a quarter of an inch and see how that works <laughs> he's wow. like no nah, no nah, I really I wanted to I wanted to, to try it a little bit shorter And then by the third hole, after he kind of got one a little bit higher, one of the guys we were playing with said, here, you need some of my four-and-a-half-inch tees. Because he only had three-and-a-half-inch Oh, come on. (laughs) He then, once with the right tees and putting that ball up a lot higher, uh, probably three-quarters of an inch, lo and behold, Johnny, he was hitting some of the most magnificent shots. I
3: have That's ever seen, ridiculous. and he
1: works at Dick's Sporting Goods in their golf oh, department. Geez. I
3: think he'd have plenty of time to hit in the simulator. And he,
1: he could have been nicer, but when I asked him, I said, "So it just felt like the right thing to do." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, I guess so," but I don't know. I'm getting a I'm getting a tailor made stealth delivered uh, tomorrow, so I'm not really worried about this. Oh, my goodness. So there's an example. Strange fella, but a nice guy. Who's the strangest yeah. dude you've ever played with?
3: I, you know what? I really haven't played with a ton of strange dudes. I played with one guy in college. He played for St. John's. He was a great player. And I played with him probably five or six times. And I'm this is no joke and no exaggeration. I think he said three words to me. There were entire rounds of golf with no words spoken as if he didn't have a vocal box. Wow.
1: As if he had been raised by wolves and and had no command.
3: (laughs) Yeah, hand signals for score. Oh, my. (laughs) You know, what'd you make? And just the fingers.
1: (laughs) That's amazing.
3: Wow. Very strange. Very strange. Anytime he was off the course, he had the old Sony Walkman headphones and stuff on. It was very weird.
1: So it was not the old Ben Hogan aloofness. Where he chooses out of his own focus or whatever to not talk to you, it was just even more than that. It was kind of weird. Did he say you're still away? Were those the three words? You're still oh, no, 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 no. away. You no, know,
3: it might have been like a little hand gesture, like um, uh, like hit or not hit in poker. You know, <laughs> just one of those things. Like you're away, <laughs> hit me. It was, it was, it's fascinating.
1: One of the other guys I met. Once playing many, 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 many moons ago at Needwood Golf Course in Maryland. Uh, This was just after college. Me and a buddy were playing, and we were paired up with a guy. We asked, hey, would you mind marking your ball? He said, no problem. He walks up to his ball, picks it up, takes his finger, John, and draws an imaginary X in the green with his fingertip. A mark on the green that I then instantly craned my neck forward, leaned in, and tried to discern if I could actually see where his fingertip mark was. Of course not.
3: (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) not. not. I mean, come on.
1: But God bless him. Uh, You know, we weren't playing for money. I was not a USGA rules official, so I did not care. It's incredible. Hole number two. Question. Is the bag drop lazy? I'll hang up and listen to your answer off the air.
3: No, no, the bag drop is believe it or not. From an organizational standpoint, the bag drop is is better for the organization. I you know, you're going to drop off the bag there. It's easier to get your name at the uh, time. Or are, whatever, you saying, are you saying? Are you
1: saying from a golf course operator's standpoint? So. From-
3: yeah. So from that it is, but I will tell you, I almost never drop my bag off at the bag drop. I just feel like I don't want some, someone waiting on me. I
1: agree. So I, I, hate I always that.
3: carry it. And I think sometimes a bag drop, people think, Oh, you don't want me touching your bag. Like it's that precious that you don't want me touching your golf bag. I do think that they think that sometimes it's I, like, no, I just, or you don't want to tip me. So you're carrying your own <laughs> golf bag. No, I'll tip you anyways. But I just, I feel like you're, just
1: waiting on me. Yeah, that's there's definitely that element to it. And I agree. I, I don't, even if the bag drop guy says, Don't worry, I'll wait. And they're very polite. I don't like to have him looking over my shoulder as I'm digging out of my trunk, my cleats, my umbrella, all this other yeah. stuff. Uh, but secondly, when <laughs> who has not at one point in their life left their bag at the bag drop when they oh. hop in their car and zoom Oof. off home? It has to have have happened to you at least once.
3: Of course. Uh, Multiple times.
1: And also, it just just seems like, what, you're so uh, incapable of carrying your golf bag 50 yards from your trunk to the front of the opera. I mean, that to me, it seems like it's very lazy, but I get it from a service standpoint, organizational standpoint.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's fascinating to me about people driving carts – like six feet off the path when it's cart path only to get closer to their
1: ball. Oh, I Just hate. on
3: the path.
1: I hate that with a passion. And I will absolutely ride my playing partners if I see them doing that. I'll say, oh, yeah, way to go. Way to put your cart there on the grass because you couldn't walk that extra 10 feet. Yeah. Whoa, Did that whoa, really help? whoa, whoa, that's a big deal. It's not hurting the grass. I go, well, one cart isn't. 160 yep. of them would. What did you gain?
3: It's amazing. Yeah, it's like they're amazing. incapable of walking. It's like, well, then I guess you shouldn't play golf. You shouldn't play any yeah. athletic event. You yeah. should be just sitting
1: your TV. Yeah. All right, quite, hole number three, quick nine. Whatever happened to Beef Johnston?
3: Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happened to Beef Johnston? That is a great one. Uh, you know, there's probably a few people that we could put in that category. But, yeah, he is gone.
1: I'm looking at his latest results. I just typed in Beef Johnston update, and he played in the Portugal Masters in 2021 November, and he finished T-47 at 4-under.
3: Yeah. It's the same thing that happened. Remember that guy who almost beat Tiger? He was kind of a Beef Johnson lookalike, a little little less hair, Mm -hmm. but he was an oversized guy, and he was a – uh, Nike guy who's who almost beat Tiger and something. He just these guys just disappear and never come back.
1: Yeah, he's apparently uh, battled to lose a lot of weight, and has updated okay. uh, people on that as of February of this past year. Still has the big smile, the crazy lumberjack beard, and is a great personality. But the golf has apparently left the 33 year old for at least a while. Yeah. So. Well,
3: hopefully he made some money. Maybe he should just go to the Live Tour.
1: They didn't offer him, apparently. Otherwise, I can guarantee you he would be there. Hole number four, quick nine. What is the most important non-golf item that you should have in your bag at all times? While you think about it, I'll hit first, Mr. Rona, since this is a strange course to you. I maintain, and I'm not a proud man to say this, but I'll say it anyway, one dude wipe at all times.
3: Just in case, I know you've had a history with that. Um, I think, person, or that was Buckhantz who had a history with that. I uh, I believe Advil is the most important thing okay. to have in the bag. Going through my back and surgeries and headaches and people I have to play with that I'm not liking, Advil probably should take a step and go Valium, something. <laughs> okay, but I think Advil is the most important.
1: Non-golf. All right. Uh, hole number five, should scorecards be standardized at golf courses? Now, I, I, I know you as a uh, director of golf at a major facility will probably have strong feelings against what I'm about to say. But I'm here to say I want scorecards standardized. I want them to fold out so the scores are all visible in one opening of the book. I want Uh it to be a cardstock that is not laminated with a coating. Some courses do that. So if it rains or gets a little bit wet, it it stays, you know, intact. I want a regular cardboard scorecard and I want just the facts, ma'am, on the inside. I don't want ads for Bob's burger bar. I don't want uh, all these photos and this other stuff in there. I certainly don't want the scorecard in which. The front nine or the back nine has to be folded over to then line up with the back nine. I hate that. Yep. Yep. And I don't want the different dimensions. Some are tall, some are long. Standardized golf cards, scorecards. I'm there to write my scores down and my partner scores in the in the boxes. That's enough. Be- okay. Believe my rant it or is not, over. Dave,
3: believe it or not, I am in your corner. Wow. Good. I would like there's a. There's a cost prohibitive effect of some of these things that you're talking about, and I'm sure for some courses that like put advertising and stuff. I am all about a piece of paper, uh, a cardboard piece of paper that you can write on with a pencil that you don't have to, you know, that 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 barely shows up on the card, right? Um, and it just folds out and just has the whole numbers and the handicaps. Yes, I am all in favor of that standardization. Okay,
1: okay, but it's a it's an expense for a course that is. One they, I'm sure, love to get rid of, but you really can't. You you can't say, oh, you want to keep score today? Well, download this app. Scan this QR yeah. code. That's not going to fly in today's game. More people go into it, though. Uh, that's true. Hole number six. How would you describe Luke Donald's career? Think about this. He has proudly taken up the dropped baton of European captain for the Ryder Cup. But he is now going to go down in the broad scope of history as a guy who is the former world's number one, who never, not just won a major, never sniffed a major. I don't think he ever played in the final group of a major on a Sunday, yet he had ascended to world's number one for a brief period of time, and he is now Ryder Cup captain, usually an exalted honor, but only because a guy (laughs) quit to go take a bunch of Saudi money on the live tour. And Luke Donald seems like the nicest guy in the world, but as I think about his career and how you describe it, I I don't know how you'd do that.
3: I think it represents, now this whole Ryder Cup thing, represents his career perfectly, that he is an afterthought. He is a complete afterthought. Oh, yeah, I remember Luke Donald. Yeah, he was good. Oh, he was number one in the world. That's right
1: he's and a now
3: he can't do anything.
1: You're saying he's a Oh, I remember him, guy.
3: Yeah, he's an afterthought and <laughs> and it's one of those, you know, he's not our first choice and that's Luke Donald in a nutshell. And you know what? He's he is sounds like a great guy and I don't think he's ever wanted the spotlight or anything else. He had a nice run, so he's number 1 according to world rankings, but he's an afterthought.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Well, I hope he does a good job. I think he will. Seems like a nice fella, but uh, it's a weird footnote again to his uh, career, which is a great career. Capital G, great, just not Hall of Fame worthy. Hole number seven. What is the best golf book ever written? You recommended Um, one to me, which I kind of took a liking to, called Extraordinary Golf by Fred Shoemaker. Remember that recommendation you gave to me?
3: Yeah, Yep. Yeah.
1: And the book I think yeah,
3: I, I think it depends on what side of the, the the brain you're looking to to improve. So, you know, there's there's mechanical books which I think the, the greatest mechanical book is B- Golf My Way by Jack Nicholas. Okay. Where it talks about the swing and things like that. Um and I think that probably the better book for all golfers would be um, A Good Walk Spoil I'm uh, not a good walk spoil. Golf is not a game of perfect
1: Dr. Uh, Bob that Bertella, Rope. that is yeah. that is on my list. By the way, on the Nicholas one, wouldn't Jack Nicholas golf my way? Which I never read the book, but I got the VHS tapes as a gift from my grandfather when I was twelve years old, and I loved him. But isn't that a bit outdated? Like you wouldn't want to teach the Nicholas swing in two thousand twenty two, would you?
3: No, I don't think you're teaching the Hogan swing either.
1: Oh, okay. You
3: know, so. So it's somewhere – everything lies in between on all these guys. But it's a Nicholas's thoughts of the aggressiveness and
2: the rotation and
3: things like that that I think are, are most important. And same, same to a degree with Hogan. But they're mixing in their own little stuff into their uh, mixes there. So, okay. um, yeah. And then, of course, if you really want a good book, it would be uh, Raising a Junior Golfer
1: ding. by John Ronis. Ding, yeah. ding. Where can you get that book yeah. if you've got a junior golfer in the house?
3: you can contact me at John Academy at gmail.com.
1: Very nice. Uh, there's also a nonfiction book called The Match, The Day the Game of Golf Changed yep. Forever, which is outstanding, written by Mark Frost. Uh, yep. Talking about, in 1956, a casual bet between two millionaires eventually pitted two of the greatest players of the year, Byron Nelson and Ben Hogan, against yep. amateurs Harvey Ward and Ken Venturi. A real story that will blow your mind. I once read a mental game of the uh, mental state of the game book called The Inner Game of Golf by Timothy Galloway uh-huh. back in the day, and it was quite fascinating to learn how your brain... Uh, processes things and gets in its own way often there is a book called golf in the kingdom by michael murphy which is a more mystical look at the game of golf and um yeah and there's a lot of golf joke books out there i googled that this morning and i said i'm not even going to get into that hole number eight who what will be the first to make a comeback metal spikes or lace flaps on shoes
3: Repeat that one again, Zave. I'm going through the country.
1: That's all right. What will be the first to make a comeback, metal spikes or lace
3: flaps? I just ordered my uh, spring allotment of uh, Foot Joys, and they still offer the flaps on many a variety of shoes. Now, you can take them off. Now you take them off. They're not connected to the shoe. But I'm still shocked every time the catalog opens up and there's flaps. Because to me, I mean, It doesn't get a whole lot worse than
1: that. Well, it doesn't get a whole lot more 70s than that. Now, why do they have those? Was that purportedly to keep water and grass off your precious laces?
3: It was water, actually, to get into the shoe. Oh. So, you know, the laces is the opening of the shoe. So they would keep the water off of that. And so it wasn't just the laces to get dirty. That's where it came from. It, and it's funny, too, because the shoe was completely non waterproof. It was a leather shoe. Oh, yeah. Who cares if the rain staying out of the laces? The thing <laughs> weighed 60 pounds when exactly. you were done the round.
1: Exactly. And finally, hole number nine what is the farthest you will drive in a single day, each way, to play a round of golf at a place that is of interest to you?
3: I'm going to go four hours. Wow. I'll go two hours, two hours out, two hours back. If it's a, If it's a special place, I'll do that. Like, for instance, if I took and drove to Caves Valley, you know, Caves is a a beautiful place. I think I drive the two hours to get there and the two hours back to get to Caves. So my my, my rule is fair.
1: My rule is I I would say four is about the limit because that's eight hours of driving plus five hours on the course. No, 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 no.
3: Two hours out, two hours there. Oh. Not – uh, no, no, not four. One I will way. drive. No way.
1: Okay, well, I will drive four each way for a U.S. Open, Ooh. for a U.S. Open or major championship venue course.
3: All right. Two I I hours. Agree with you there.
1: Two hours for an elite private club, and about an hour for just a casual round of golf.
3: I'm with you on that, and you know, it depends on who you're playing with, and, and who might you be riding with.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there's that as well. That's a yeah. whole different story. Yeah. So, that said, I hope your pups are happy to see you as you go feed them. Maybe next week on the show, we should talk about dogs and golf courses. The best dogs you've ever seen on a golf course, riding with somebody who's a golfer, oh. the dogs that some superintendents have to help oh, keep the geese. That's the greatest off that's the golf the course the fact that in the UK it's not uncommon to have dogs our regular companions that are trained well enough to behave on the golf course maybe that's next every week's topic.
3: superintendent every superintendent has a dog uh, over overseas they, every one of them has a dog yeah. and they're they're their best friends
1: yeah and here in the states the yeah. ones that have geese problems believe me you me they've got a border collie wow. and those things yeah. love to chase geese.
3: All right, great.
1: Mr. Ronas, good run today. Thank you very much. Uh, once again, uh, uh, raising a junior golfer available from Mr. Ronas himself. Nice quick read, help guide you along the way. Just reach out to John at? John Ronas Golf Academy
3: at gmail.com.
1: Right, I'll send buddy. it right
3: out to
1: you. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, bud.
3: Thanks, Dave. Great talking to you.
1: There you go. And that will do it for another edition of the Capital Golf Gang, presented by Golfdom in Tyson's Corner for all your equipment, fitting balls, bags, shoes with lace flaps, apparel needs. Golfdom is the place to go. Beautiful store and if you can't get there in person, in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, golfdomgolf.com online. Thank you for listening. Have yourself a great weekend. Keep on playing through the heat of the mid-Atlantic summer and the humidity and we will see you next time. This has been the Capital Golf Gang
0: on the Team 980 If you'd like the gang to visit your home course, send your inquiries to zabe at yahoo.com. That's C-Z-A-B-E at yahoo.com. Or visit the show page at www.theteam980.com. And for free swag, we're all in extra large. So yeah, thanks for the shirts.